Welcome to Movies Charles Hasn't Seen, episode 74. My name is Crossman. I'm Wilson. And I'm Charles. Each week, Wilson and I share a classic movie we have seen with Charles that he has not seen. This week, we watched the 1985 movie Brazil. Charles, can you attempt to summarize this film? It's all about Brazil. <laughs> well, um, yeah. yeah, so I watched a tour. Starts in Sao Paulo. <laughs> tour guide for Brazil. No, but. Um, this movie is actually very similar to 1984. It's like a kookier version of 1984. Yes, so heavily inspired um, by 1984. It centers around Sam Lowry, who is a government employee in this sort of futuristic society that's been taken over by a totalitarian government. He runs into a woman who he's seen in his dreams, and so he pursues her because he's fallen in love, in love with her, obviously. And he does end up finding her, and things sort of work out for them for a little bit, but then the government like busts him because he'd like broken the law a bunch of times trying to find her <laughs> and save her from the government. And then he ends up uh, in a torture room where the resistance troops kind of bust in and blow up the whole place and save him, and then he gets to run off into the sunset um, with this woman of his dreams. But then it turns out that this is actually just his mind kind of closing in while he's being tortured. And he's lost his mind from the horrors of torture. And the movie just ends there. Yep. It's kind of a downer yeah. at the end. A bit. A bit. Uh, although potentially, uh, the director said that he viewed himself as something of an optimist and liked that government can't penetrate your mind. You can always retreat into your own mind and they can't get you there. That's um, a very optimistic reading of that. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. I agree that's a very optimistic reading. Um, but this was my selection. I've been wanting to do this movie for a while uh, just because it's super weird and I wanted to talk about it and I was curious what Charles would think about it. Um, it's, it's a bit of a classic. I think it's a cult classic. I think we bring that term up a lot, but it probably qualifies here. I watched this for the first time in college in a film class. So this is a film class kind of movie, and I think it still reads that way. Um, but I like it, I think it's good, it's weird in a way that, a weird in a way that makes sense, and weird in a way that feels purposeful and in, with, with intent to me, um, and still is kind of not, not hard to watch. Like this movie is strange, but like you can still follow it and still enjoy the experience of watching it. Mm -hmm. Although apparently a bunch of people walked out when it initially screened. <laughs> um, but yeah, I like this movie, I think I, I find value in it, and I find that uh, Gilliam makes a lot of interesting choices that come anew each time I watch the movie. Uh, what do you think of it, Charles? It's a good one. So while I was watching it, I don't think I liked it. Didn't feel like the right type of weird. I guess I don't like weird stuff that often anyway. Um, but it felt like the kind of weird that really put me off, and like it's supposed to, but like it's not the kind that I really enjoy that much. But after like hitting the ending and then like leaving the movie and thinking about it for a while, I've grown to appreciate the movie a lot more. Uh, so maybe it's that difference between like my impression of the movie versus the actual viewing experience and dealing with the weirdness in the moment. Um, because now I appreciate the movie and I like it a lot more, uh, having thought about it. Yeah, and I think that's a sign of a good viewer and a good movie mm -hmm. that you can like gain new stuff out of it as you grow with the film or move away from the film or whatever. When did when, when you see this one, Crossman? When I first see it? Yeah. I saw it in college, but I it wasn't in a very good context because I was at a party and it was being projected on a wall without <laughs> sound. Okay, so that's not really saying so, it. <laughs> I remember looking at it and just being like, what? What's what going on? Was there like a big magnifying glass in front of it? What is this film? Yeah, right? <laughs> no, it was just being projected. Yeah. But And so I did some research and discovered that, that it was Brazil. this film, and then I watched it uh, 
I think shortly thereafter. Yeah. Yeah, so that was that was my like first experience with the film, <laughs> which I think is actually a good first experience with this film. <laughs> yeah, like I remember when my professor had us watch it, like he gave us no intro. He's just like, we're gonna watch this movie today. And we're like, class is like, okay. And so he puts on fucking Brazil. <laughs> we're just like, That's oh, the right okay. way to introduce this, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, I guess this is what's happening. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this movie is an experience. Um, and it, it may be best to just go into it blind. I, I don't know, I feel like maybe, probably most movies are that way. Um, I've seen it a few times now, and I think it makes a lot more sense as a film on repeated watchings. That's probably true, yes. Whereas the first time I watched it was obviously like very perplexing, but even the second time I was like not not totally <laughs> yeah. sure what what occurred in the film. Right. Well now it, I feel like it's actually quite clear. I agree. Yeah. Well, and I think but part I of the time and distance, so Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I think part of the confusion comes from the novelty of this world that Gilliam has created. Yes. Right? Because it's not, it is obviously the primary inspiration here is 1984, right? Like that is crystal clear. But it's also like this quasi steampunk thing where like you have all these, this weird technology that looks kind of crappy all over the place, but everyone dresses like it's 1945. And then it's like a 1940s future. It's sort of like Fallout, right. but yeah, less kind apocalyptic. Of like that. And it, and then it's also like all the media that they're watching is from like the 30s. Mm -hmm. And but then the the level of government surveillance and the advancement of the technology is well past the period even when the film was made. Never mind when you can determine when it takes place or the culture it's drawing from. So like watching this for the first time and taking in all of these disparate cultural signifiers and trying to compile them into something that is coherent. It's challenging. <laughs> yeah. That's what it was for me anyway, right? Like trying to fit together, like what does it mean to have all this stuff in the same space at the same time? Yeah, I mean, there's also a lot of distance for us. Like I was born the year that this movie came out. Really? And mm. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think it's very, I mean, like all documents, it's of its time. The references I picked up on a lot now made me think a lot about like Thatcherism, how yes. that like the right, because it's a UK context, even... Gilliam is an American, but he's lived in the UK. He actually renounces when U Bush US was elected the second time. Yeah, yeah. Good for him. You know, kidding. Good yeah. for him. He like what really committed to it. Yes. All those liberals that said they were going to move when Bush or Trump won, he Gilliam did it. He delivered. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Thatcherism was the you know it's 1985, so yeah. you know so the, just one year too late to be on the nose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the the military, the increase in military policing, which so the U.S. is far beyond the U.K. is still like very present in the U.K. Mm -hmm. The other thing that comes to mind was, I'm sure Northern Ireland and the Irish are still like, you know, duking it out. So there's there are like pretty regular bombings yeah, in and, Ireland and well after this movie came out too. Like that was going mm -hmm. on and on. Yeah, yeah, so it made me think of of that a lot. Um, yeah, and yeah. it's funny you mentioned that because. I, in my yeah. research and my preparation for this episode, yeah. I discovered that there is apparently some or mythical or legendary Irish folklore about an, ir an island named Brazil with an S that appears once every, that you can see once every seven years, but even on that, for one day, and even on that day, you can never reach it. But mm -hmm. it's supposed to be like this mythical place where everything is great, that you're, that is totally unattainable. Uh, and. It, so it's interesting that you bring up the parallel between the Irish, North, Northern the Irish, yeah, the Troubles, exactly, yeah. and that parallel, because I think that Gilliam almost certainly knew about that, mm -hmm. that lore. Um, and, but how, yeah. it's, it's still like a very prescient film, though, because right, the way that they treat 
terror in terrorism feels like very normal yes. now or like normalized in the US culture because of like all the stuff that happened September 11th and and all that. So it's it's amazing how relevant it felt like watching it cuz the way that they have to like the way that they deal with terrorism in the movie is comical in that they like they move on with their lives so much so <laughs> that like even if they're in the scene of like an active attack, they ignore it physically. They just finish their lunch. Yeah, yeah. Like that. Yeah, the clearest yeah. example of that is when he's having lunch with his mother and his mother's friend, and the woman he doesn't want to date, and the terrorist attack happens in the restaurant, and they just continue eating their meal, and they continue serving food to other patrons, yeah. and they. It's and not they even bring that, out a screen. Though. They bring out a screen to, to cover, cover it up. up. Yes, yeah. exactly. So it's not even that <laughs> they are getting over it quickly. They never engage with it in the first place. It's just not at all something that is perceived. Yeah. While people are you know dying and screaming. I think that's great for a number of reasons. It's, it's obviously like great political commentary, but it really shows like Gilliam's like comedy chops yes. that this like. Yeah. This like absurdist moment that happens for something that's like super serious. <laughs> yeah, which is yeah. like very British, very British, very, very. I mean, he's part of Monty Python. Very so Monty like, Python. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it feels like a good extension of that. Right, and the, yeah. and this feels like such a British movie. Like not just because it's, there's a bunch of British actors in it and it was made in the UK, but like <laughs> just in terms of like the look of it, like you can see like some of the Monty Python inspiration in the sets and in the way that this stuff is framed and like the large scale kind of silly humor. Like the, like when the, the, the boss is looking out of his office to try to catch the guys goofing off and they always just misses him. Like that feels like a Monty Python joke to me. And the look of the film like it is inspired, to me it looks like it's inspired by like the in-between bits in Flying Circus where they have the cutout Illustrations and stuff flying around, mm. like there which are, is what Gilliam made. That was yeah, his role. Exactly. In Monty Python was to make those things. <laughs> he did that stuff. So. And I think you can see that kind of, you know, patched together type of aesthetic in in this film as well. Yeah, even like the world itself is like very. It's all like industrial ducting that's like going through. Yes. This like these like eighteen or nineteenth century buildings. Right. Essentially. Right. So. And it, well, it's funny you bring up the ducks because that's something that I think the, the film is noted for frequently, like that there's these ducks that they use to transport paper, I guess, are everywhere, right? And like when Ebert reviewed this movie, he didn't like it and he complained about like the lazy set design that just like throws ducks into normal rooms. And that feels like a gross misreading of the movie. Like I think the... Mm -hmm that particular set design decision is very critical. I mean, has he ever been in an office setting of any type? Like, right. that's what it looks like. They just kind of, you know, leave the ceiling open and the... Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it, well, and... They don't want to spend money to update the building. You just add the tech you need to... In the space you have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, or the architecture, like the sort of brutalist architecture of the time, like, doesn't accommodate for any of this stuff. So no, it just yeah. has to be in your room. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, exactly, or in your office. Yeah. Well, and more to the point, it. They associate those ducks, ducks so strongly with the Ministry of Information and the government and this overbearing regime that is running this world, such that when you see them in every single scene and in every single room, it's impossible to not be constantly reminded of this oppressive force in your life, right? They are literally always present. Yeah, and it's like, less obvious than just having like literal cameras everywhere. Right, right, And it, it but it functions in that same role. Yeah. When you see like this, you know, fancy ornate restaurant with giant ducks coming out of the ceiling and going into the floor, 
right? Like it, it really, I think, drives that point home. And so it's not just, you know, fidelity to how offices are structured. It's also like has a very clear messaging and function in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think like all things, it also does like a good job of pointing out that like just under the surface, like everything here is like really crappy. Yes. And I, I feel like I've had that experience like a number of times in my life where I've gone <laughs> to like a quote unquote like nice thing. And if you just like take a step back and like look at the scene, it's like, <laughs> wait, all this is like oh, actually <laughs> terrible. And it, it's something that we kind of just like gloss over in our normal lives, but it's highlighted so well here. Yeah. That, well, like, yeah, we, yeah, we live in New York, and like the easy example for that phenomena is Times Square, right? Like it's this <laughs> tourist attra attraction that people tra literally travel all over the world to come to, and it's terrible, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like everybody hates it. No, I well, I assume it's an so, experience for the tourists. Is it though? Yeah, I so I, I agree with you, but I think it's much more normalized than that. Like I, uh, I'm trying to think of like a good example of this, but like. I, and New York is a good example of this, but like just the city in rent, general. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is a city in general. But like, if you rent like, you know, a twenty five hundred dollar a month apartment, right? right? And then you go, and it, like, it turns out that like, oh, it actually sucks inside, and like, right. it's like the heating tiny, fucked yeah, up, or there's a rat there, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the moment that this like kind of speaks to more sure. so than like, because the Times Square one I, I agree with, but I feel like that's like obvious and like we all know that and that's actually a part of the allure of Times Square is that it's like how bad it is you know, how crappy it <laughs> <Sure>. is since <laughs> in a way Vegas is that as well yeah but I think it's also there's like a, a normal like almost like complacency in our lives that like to survive mentally we have to like be okay with things being crappy yeah and and tricking us ourselves into thinking that they're nice right or that yeah. it's okay that you don't care that it's crappy Right. Right, or that, that like, this you, is You just acceptable. cover them up. You make them modern ducts, right? Right, like right, which is how the, almost how the movie opens, right? Like, that they're yeah. advertising how to make these unsightly ducts something that yeah. you can accessorize and make acceptable in your home. And then the TV shop gets blown up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you're, you're right. I think that that particular bit of set design is important in a movie where the, the set design is really, really important <laughs> to what the film's about. Um, what I caught that was interesting was all the TVs being really tiny. Uh, it was a strange aesthetic um, for this movie. Like all, all the monitors everywhere, they're all really tiny, uh, and people use like magnifying glasses to yes. enlarge them so you can actually see what's going on on the screen. And like besides being a quirky choice, um, I think it has to do with like the dissemination of information because like if everybody has these tiny monitors, then like it's more inconvenient to like taking information yes right and that restricts people's uh restricts the flow of information i guess yeah which is so much what this film is about right like controlling acquiring and controlling and concealing information and it's stuff that people know i think yes and the fact that like it's a magnifying glass which like itself is like its own sort of like examination tool mm -hmm. so like everything because the movie's like so much about like observation and and the recording and tracking of things, like the magnifying glass like is a tool for that. And mm -hmm. so like you're combining it with like, you know, the newfangled computer, which in the mid eighties is becoming very normalized. And so you like you have this like the high technology of like 
tracking and information systems and the lowest, which is the magnifying glass, and you just put yeah. them together in this universe. Right. Yeah. Well, and so. by placing these magnifying glasses all over his movie, Gilliam sets himself up for a lot of these really interesting shots where you're looking, you're like he positions the camera behind the computer as someone is sitting at the desk, and you have part of the shot shot through the magnifying glass, and the rest of it just in a normal focus, and it, it, it distorts people's presentation so much, right? There, there's so many distorted images of the body and of the face in this film. Like, people are constantly looking stranger, and you're very frequently seeing people in masks, right? Or you're seeing yeah. them through some sort of mirror or some sort of reflection or a magnifying glass that makes them look not like themselves, that makes them look like something otherly and something non-human. Yeah. And of course there's the aspect of the movie that bothered me the most, I guess, is it feels like the entire movie is shot through this fisheye lens. Yeah. Just like the entire way through, everything feels like a little bent out. Yep. Yeah, he's, he's kind of... That he like invented that for this film. Yeah. I think it's called a Gilliam lens. Oh, yeah. oh really? No, I yeah. did not know that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so yeah. like watching this movie, it really reminded me of all those like, uh, like kids candy commercials from the nineties. Mm -hmm. If you guys know what I'm talking yes, about, which totally. gave me like the bad type of nostalgia because I hated those commercials. <laughs> but they all had those kind of weird camera angles. They must have been inspired by this movie because they had all those weird camera angles where you're like looking up at the subjects and everything's kind of curved out, so all the proportions are distorted and they look weird. And they were going for like kooky and funny and like, you know, extreme or whatever the yeah. 90s stuff was. But I always hated that aesthetic and watching this movie just brought me right back to all those commercials. Right, it's, it's like this movie takes place in the Uncanny Valley. Yeah. Right, like everything looks a little wrong. Yeah. Right, like everything seems a little bit off. Mm -hmm. And Gilliam's doing it on purpose, right? Because oh, yeah. the world is a little bit off, right? Like living in this place is disorienting and dehumanizing and awful. It's, but, it's also like very uh, crushing in the sense, like yeah. there's no clear way to like exit this yeah, the fish society eye, even though that it they bends, live in. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it bends the image outward, it feels constricting. Exactly. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that just compounds everything else that's happening in the movie. There's so many crowded spaces here. There's garbage everywhere, mm -hmm. right? Like, he'll just, there's clutter. There's, everything seems like it's, yeah, closing him in. Like, when he gets his off, he gets his promotion, right? Or he accepts his promotion, and he's in an office, and his office has a false wall split down the middle of it. That was hilarious. And, and he's sharing a desk with the guy next to him through the wall, yeah. and they have to, like, push-pull on this desk, right? Like, even this tiny little space... He has to be in competition with somebody else in order to have this very basic thing, which is just a, a flat surface to write on. And I think you see that kind of maneuver over and over again in the film, right? And it, and, and again, this idea that it, it is inescapable, which is why the ending is so uh, on point, right? That the, the only escape he has is a really a retreat into himself, and to just find this tiny space within his own head that they can't reach because everything external to him is very external to him. He cannot control it and he has no agency there. Uh, and I, I think that's really kind of fundamentally what the film is stating. The film also deals a lot with uh, police violence. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's like a major <laughs> theme within the film. And as opposed to terrorism and terrorist violence in the film. Right. So the terrorists in the film seem to be led by Robert De Niro's character 
Yeah, yeah. rogue HVAC tech. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was weird. <laughs> right, like that's that's what it means to be a rebel here is to fix people's heating when you're not allowed to. Yeah, so there's <laughs> there's, there's a few layers to it. Um, so the one of the major features of this dystopian society is is uh, its bureaucracy. Yes, very uh, British again. Very British. Yeah. Lots of paperwork. Yeah, yep. lots of paperwork. Um, that that is interesting though because like in like one aspect of the state and this can include like private companies as well is the the way in which like bureaucracy like perpetuate perpetuates itself mm -hmm. and like what if you call like you know a helpline and try and get help it's purposely hard to get help cuz the companies like don't want you to do that yes so like there are like advantages to being bureaucratic within an organization like that um, so it's interesting how the, like the prime, like the primary way in which this society is dystopic is its bureaucracy. Yeah. That like you can even become like crushed by the bureaucracy, which Just happens actually to De Niro's character. Yeah, it, well, yeah. sort of. Sort of. Yeah. yeah. The absence yeah. of law in this film is interesting, right? Because I think e even in 1984, yeah. you would see like abuses of judicial power, right? Or you would see like some sort of, you know, legal mechanism that comes along and makes things worse for you, or a legal me mechanism that is ignored and violated in order to make your life worse. And here it seems like the only law at play is this bureaucracy, yeah. right? Like there's nothing else I assume that's on. just what the government became, so that is the law. Right, right? exactly. That's what it feels like, where, where the law has become simply filing papers and moving them from one place to the next place to the next place. And that is, is fascinating to me, that, it, it, that the, the law becomes something that really just fades away and becomes absorbed within, you know, the bureaucracy. But that, I mean, that's a perfect reflection of the society in which we live, yeah. especially with you know, the recent Supreme Court case around this. But, like... As you know, if you interact with the company at all, including like at your job, mm -hmm. you are at a major disadvantage because of the bureaucratic nature of the system. So, like, if you get fired, you're you don't have much recourse against the company that you work with because it's so tilted in their favor. Like, if you were to go to the court system, you're know, an at-will employee. It could be years, yeah. even if you were correct, right? Yeah. And you're you're not guaranteed of that. And and, uh, and when you so are, the remedy is often trivial. Yeah. Right. Like and, the the fix doesn't matter. And so we see this like even in very extreme cases where like you know, what twenty coal miners got killed or something, and the the owner of the mines went to jail for like a year. It was surprising that he went to jail at all. Yeah, right. So, exactly. Yeah. Right. So like the the way in which the bureaucracy is dealt with in this movie is felt too real. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was yeah. re reminded of my own job because I work in the court system. And, yeah. like, if you want to file a paper, you, in Kings County Supreme Court, you go to the clerk, they make sure you have everything in order. They put yeah. a stamp on it. They tell you to go to the basement on the opposite end of a large building. You go down there, you wait in line, you pay the guy the $45, they put their own stamp on it, take some of the papers, make no sure correct. that you had all the right stuff, then you go back to the place that you started in. And which this is, was like yeah, a sub exactly what happened in the yeah, movie. Yeah. You go back to the place where you started, yeah. and then they check and make sure that you have the receipt for the $45 you pay, and then they put your papers in a bin, and then you hear back in like three weeks. 
<laughs> right? It's yeah. like that. It, it, it's it's back purposely and meant to. And back and, like they I, literally put, they put these spaces yeah. as far away from each other as they could. Yeah. I, I love the joke in this movie about the difference between information retrieval and information dispersal. <laughs> yes. When he's trying to retrieve some information, he's like, we're information retrieval, we're not dispersal. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where do you expect to get that? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and, and I think this is probably one of the places where it is most closely tied to 1984 with the abuse of language. Yeah. Right? Because there's a, a information retrieval is torture. <laughs> That's their euphemism yeah. for torturing people because you're retrieving information from a person via delivering pain upon them until they can't take anymore. Yeah. And that you, I think George Orwell was very concerned with that when he wrote 1984, and he he stated it more explicitly in an essay he wrote called um, "Politics and the English Language," I think was the name of it, and it's, it's pretty well known. It's pretty short, and he talks about how the language that we use limits our political imagination because it cuts off the possibility of even conceiving of a politic outside of the state and yeah. outside of the country that you're in because mm -hmm. you don't have the words for it. You don't have the means to express it. And this is important because it's tied to De Niro's character, right? Yes. De Niro's character is a terrorist in the society, but really what he does is he goes around and like does the, fixes things in a very simple way. Yes. And that in the society is a terrorist. Like, <laughs> right. And that's, and it, it, so terrorist is exactly yeah. whatever they say it is. It has nothing to do with terrorizing anybody. He's literally helping people for free. What I thought sounded really disturbing is that they had a department called Information Adjustment, I think it was called. Yeah. Like, that sounds kind of weird, yeah, just exactly. like thinking about it, right? Right, and it, again, straight out. They can adjust the truth? Like, yeah, straight out of 1984. We've always been at war with Oceana, right? Same thing. Yeah. And so I think that, again, a very British fear, mm -hmm. but it has become universal. It's worldwide, right? So, De Niro's character contrasts in a very obvious way with the police in the yeah. society who are, will enforce thing like very minor infractions in a Judge Dredd-like yes. way, right? Because they, you know, they're quick, they're very trigger happy. Um, yeah, they fire a lot of bullets. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. At like unarmed people. Yeah. Yep. Over and over again. This, this also felt like very recent. Yeah. Um, in our current society where police don't seem That's to have any check on literally their, on what their cops power. do all the time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and here here's this warning about this, you know. Yeah. yeah. That was another great like years. depressingly humorous like, joke. Because, like, the cops always bust in through your roof with this, like, circular cut. Yeah. Right? yeah. They bust through, they bust through the doors. But after the first raid at the very beginning of the movie, like, the fixing crew comes in. They've got, like, a perfectly sized hole filler because they know they're, they're always coming through with these, these, like, hole drills to come through people's roofs. And so they just have this crew that comes by to fill in all these holes that they keep making. And like they didn't even make it right, but uh, well, that's I just the it was best. Funny that they that's had the that. best part is that the um, the Jill, whatever her name is, uh, says like, "Oh, what are you guys? Are you sure that's going to fit? Like that doesn't look right." And the guy's like, "Oh no, we're information, whatever. We don't make mistakes." And he drops the it the just goes right through, right through yeah. <laughs> the yeah. floor below immediately after that. And they, I mean, that's Gilliam's comedy chops again. Um, but yeah, that it was, was just great. it was picture perfect. Um, we haven't talked about the characters at all. Uh, well, De, De Niro's. Except for De, yeah. De Niro, yeah. But our lead is Lowry, uh, played by Jonathan Price, who I did not realize until this viewing was also the Sparrow in Game of Thrones. There's multiple Game of Thrones actors. Who else is in here? Yeah. Um, the, uh, 
the, the guy who was the, the meister for the Black Watch is in this film. Oh, really? As well? Yeah. Okay. The he's very like old in Game 80, of Thrones, yeah. so he looks different in this film. But he's, he's in this film as well. Okay, I did not realize that. I think that. there's one more actor, too. But it's all, like, famous Brits. So. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. You're, you're going to draw on some. I only yeah. know him from uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Jonathan Price was in Tomorrow Never Dies? He's the main villain. Yeah. Okay, it's been a while since I've seen yeah. that random-ass Bond movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, but yeah, he was he's the lead here. going to be Don Quixote in the yeah. upcoming Gilliam. If that ever gets released. Oh. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, yeah, who else? Is, I think it's Adam Driver's in that, too. Which is... Is he? I don't know. I, I know very little about it other than Gilliam has been working on this for Okay, yeah. Decades. I think I, 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 thought I, saw, I thought I saw a screenshot with, with Adam Driver in it. Um, so well, I, it's not I, Don Quixote if you don't have some sort of fruitless pursuit of it, right? That's the yeah. great irony is that he's been trying to make a Don Quixote movie and failing yeah. over and over again for years. He's had a lot of trouble getting films made. Because he keeps in making movies career. like Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> no, because there's the one where he had he was working with Heath Ledger when Heath Ledger died. Yeah, oh, man. And, uh, and that they brought in a bunch of other actors to like reprise the role several times throughout the film. Yeah, right? and the company that he was working with. On Brazil or one of his other films, oh, Baron Munchausen. Oh yeah, was, I've uh, seen that. That's a weird movie. I think the company like went bankrupt when right before they were about to release the film, oh. and so the yeah, so he's this had like cursed. a lot of he's had a hard time like getting things out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and he's yeah. kind of a curmudgeonly weirdo, um, and I think that yeah. that might contribute to it. Like he he showed up on Twitter today because somebody. Some reporter asked him about superhero movies, and he's like, superhero movies, they're all bullshit. Come on, grow up. <laughs> End of quote. <laughs> he's not wrong. <laughs> he also, he's uh, coincidentally, or uh, related, he uh, has tried to make The Watchmen twice. Once really? in the late 80s and once in the mid-90s. Well, now David Lindoff is doing it for... Uh for HBO. Well, hopefully it's better. Hopefully it's better. Well, it's got to be. Gotta but uh, Gilliam would have been great for of course. it. Because he like, understands the politic behind... Well, and Alan Moore is also a, a curmudgeonly weirdo, so... Yeah, yeah I'm sure <laughs> they would work right great together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or horribly, maybe. Yeah. But uh, I mean, their politics are aligned, so... That's true. Yeah. That is certainly true. Um, so yeah, I would, I would definitely watch the Gilliam Watchmen movie. That seems yeah. great. Uh, but our lead here is, is John Price yeah. as, as Lowry. Um, that kind of plays this guy that hates his job and doesn't want to do it, so he doesn't do it, right? Like, but he's good at it. He's good at the first one. As, as opposed to everybody else who seems right. purposely, who generally are purposely incompetent. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, the first one where he has few responsibilities yeah. and less pressure, he is good at it, and depicts it as being good at it. Yeah. Uh, and then later on, when he gets his promotion, he literally doesn't do any work at that job and just like runs around in his adventures. Well, I mean, time. he got the promotion just to chase after the right. girl, right? Yeah, so he exactly. wasn't intending to do the work anyway. <laughs> and he, yeah. I, I kind of love that about the movie, that he, he gets up there and like immediately does no work for them. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. That, that cracked me up. Um, yeah, working hard is scabbing for the unemployed. Yeah, uh. I think he's a good like straight man to all the comedy that's happening around him. Yeah, though, where he because his character plays it serious, even mm-hmm. though there's like absurd things happening around him. And that's just his life. Yeah, it is, and he acts it well. Right. Yeah, I mean, he's a classically trained actor, yeah. so yeah, he like he knows what he's doing. He's, he knows, Here, but he's, he's really good in this film. He is. Yeah, yeah. I, I I like how. And he's great in Game of Thrones, too. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. Yeah. So. Uh, I, I like how much he seems disinterested in the things he is supposed to be interested in. 
right? Like, because it seems like his great transgression, at least for the the mother figure, is that he lacks ambition, and that's the mm -hmm. same thing that his buddy Jack chides him for early in the film, and it seems as though the film is saying that your only b value comes from a desire to improve and a desire to advance, and contentment is a bad thing. Like mm -hmm. being satisfied with where you are is a mark not of achieving some sort of balance and happiness in your life, but in, a mark in of the laziness. story of the film. Not, yeah, because the film seems to point to that. Like, it's fine that he doesn't need to do this. Well, yeah, but, the, yeah. I mean, yeah, the. There's, there's like the, the ideology of the film and right. there's like the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not, yeah. The ideology is obviously saying that this world is bad and what the lessons it's teaching are bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. is crystal clear. Um, but the ideology of the people within the film yeah. and of the setting of the film is saying that if you are not advancing yourself, yeah. you are a leech. Also, right? and, and that his ambition is actually a fiction, right? Right. It comes from his rich parents, and the only reason that he moves up in this world is because his rich his mother fixes like opened the mm -hmm. door for him because she's friends with people in power in this society. Right, right, and and, it, and he doesn't get any guff for that, right? Like there's yeah. no like the Jack character that comes along and says like, oh, why are you still working in information, whatever? Like you could you could take advantage of all these connections that you have and, and do it. He, he he's approaching that as though he's dumb for not doing that, not oh you you could benefit from your nepotism and I'm jealous of that. Like, yeah. there's none of that. So it's like, you idiot, do this thing. And I, I find that... Uh, Which is such a great, like, illustration of, like, how nepotism works. Right, right, exactly. Right. And how... Because if he did take advantage of it, right. he could rise very quickly through the society and... Do no work. Right, and do, and do work. <laughs> and, yeah. and, that's, and yeah. the... I think part of the reason that he is so alienated from this job is that it is a perfect example of the bullshit job. Right, like there's an article that I was reading that I think has been floating around the internet recently, where they talked to all these people at you know their their bullshit job, and the guy's like, if if my if I showed up tomorrow and my office disappeared, and it just wasn't there, not only would nobody care, not not only would it not matter, I wouldn't care, <laughs> right? And I think that that is very telling. There was right. uh, someone I was reading today, I, I think I shared with you guys, someone was reading the Theranos book, and, right, which is that tech company that. Collapsed because it didn't do anything. <laughs> um, but it was worse than not doing anything. Elizabeth Holmes, who started it, hired her brother and like all of his frat brothers. Right. And he spent his days just copying articles from ESPN into emails and then reading them. <laughs> Which is yeah. hilarious. So it so looks make, like he's got an email open. It right. looks like he's like doing something in email, but he's really just reading ESPN. Oh my God. And he yeah. did this all day. And probably got paid a lot of money. Seven figures, I'm sure. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, which is hilarious, right? Yeah. And it, I think it speaks so clearly to the, the point that, that Gilliam's making, right? Mm -hmm. That the, all, so many jobs are irrelevant. Right, so many jobs don't matter, and so many of the things that we demand of people are, if not inconsequential, outright harmful, right? And encourage this isolated, self-focused, individual-focused view of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that in the, the plotting and the imagery of this film over and over again. Right? Like there's that there's that bit when they're on that weird bus that has like see-through yeah. walls. And you have all these guys in like their 1945 suits sitting down and there's a woman with one leg standing using a cane and nobody moves for her. 
<laughs> and the movie never comments on it, right? Like, there's never any point. I didn't about, notice that actually. Yeah, I did not. I did not see that. Yeah, it it totally happens, right? Like, it, it, these people are I so disconnected. I don't remember this happening. It definitely happened. Yes, there's a. It was. Or, I, don't I don't know. Like a, where does this happen? It's like a third of the way through the movie. It's like a third of the way through the movie. So nearish the beginning. It's okay. like a glass train. They're that in he's like coming this, home on. Yeah, it's like a train or a bus or something that the John Price character is coming home on. I think it's after he visits the Buttle wife character. And you have everybody seated along the border, like the outside wall, and it's all men that are seated, and there's one person standing, and that person is a woman. That person has, is missing a leg yeah. and is using a cane. <laughs> Nobody stands up for her. And the movie never comments on it. Like, it's probably very, I bet a lot of audience members did what you did, or they just didn't notice it. Yeah. But I think you see that kind of just casual callousness throughout this film and it's not condemned by the film and it's not condemned by any of the characters in the film it's so it feels as though it's such a natural part of this world that nobody even thinks to notice it or comment on it right like you see the same thing happen when the um, John Price character goes to deliver the check to to the woman whose husband is abducted and murdered never offers condolences never apologizes for, for the error that was made, never expresses any kind of remorse or sorrow, says, oh yeah, we, I'm doing you a favor because I'm delivering this by hand, and gives her the check and like his little speech about the form that she has to fill out, and like does not engage with, the, with this woman's anguish in any way. And it's, it's inhuman, but the movie never comments on it, and the, the movie never seems to even pick up on the fact, overtly, that this is the way people are behaving. Mm -hmm. Right, just in this way that is totally disconnected from their humanity and from the humanity of the people around them. And that is the kind of ethos that this hyper-bureaucratic and capitalistic society not only engenders and encourages, but actually manifests, create, creates in people, right? And this guy that would otherwise be, and desire compassion in the world, and you see that in the dreams that he keeps having, that he wants to escape, he wants to help this woman, right? In his, in his id, that's who he is, but it, it, there is no outlet for it in the society that he's living in, and therefore he manifests as a lazy, unkind man. And that's really sad. Right? That's, a, that's a really sad thing. Yeah. And it just happens in the background of this film, just casually. So, Terry Gilliam's a really good director. He is. Yeah. <laughs> he can do stuff like that. I think that he's a really good director. Um, what do we think of the dream sequences? They were pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I really liked the uh, Japanese-inspired aesthetic that started creeping into it. Because, mm -hmm. um, like, the the monsters with, like, the baby masks. Yeah. Um, they're very creepy. It's and like I'm a Dark Souls sure, thing, right? I'm pretty sure that's, like, a Japanese thing. Now, this is just going by having seen cards from... Uh, the Champions of Kamigawa Magic set, which right. were well, and there's a all Japanese-inspired. There's a samurai that shows up. <laughs> right, I mean, the samurai is yeah. the obvious one, but like the the baby mask thing, like, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's also a very Japanese yeah, like, the spiritual thing. Demons are usually thing. depicted as like wearing masks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yes, that is common. And then it shows up in the real world when, at the end of the film, when uh, the John Price character is about to be tortured by his friend, um, he has the same kind of baby mask on, which is creepy as hell. Right, and I don't know if there's a real purpose to the big bad thing being a samurai beyond it just looking cool. I mean, I guess Japan was very big um, to the world back in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, like, people figured it was going to become a top world power back then, and Which, so, like... Not a crazy idea. 
Yeah, I yeah. mean, they kind of stagnated after that, but like back in the 80s, like Japan was huge. Um, so I guess that might be part of it. Yeah, I, I don't want to critique it as, well, maybe I should critique it as kind of an Orientalist move, right? Like mm -hmm. that it's this. Oh, these like foreign forces. Yeah, it's this, just this strange it's thing. outlandish. Right, yeah, here's this thing that is not like what you're used to. Um, so uh, there might be some of that. That's true. Uh, Visually, it is very cool. Yes. The way that they handle it. Yeah, it is. It is striking. You get a bit yeah. of that like yeah. Empire Strikes Back sequence where he defeats the samurai, but it's himself. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's exactly what that reminded me yeah. of. Um, and I think that that's important as well, right? Because I think there's a lot of suggestions here that the Jill character is a manifestation of his desire. Um, I think I don't think the film is exactly doing a Fight Club move where like she's not real, but it's pretty clear that he is projecting a lot onto this woman <laughs> that oh, yeah. may not actually be taking it all That's in. That's the point Which, where, oh no, go ahead. The character um, played by uh, Catherine Hellmond, no, that's his mother. Um, You're talking about Kim Jill? Bryce, yeah. Jill Layton, yeah. who's the woman that he's like seeking out throughout the whole film. Mm -hmm. Her, when he finally meets her, and he like confesses his love for her. She's like, I don't know who you are. Which is such guy. a like great naturalistic, yeah, like kind of anti movie move. Yeah. Where it's like, it felt very real that she was just why, like, why would she? You are a stalker, right? Well, and yeah. I love that like the the trick that she pulls on him, where she's like, oh yeah, you're kind of good looking, and he leans back, yeah. and he's like, oh yeah, thanks, and then she kicks him out of the car, yeah, opens literally up the door, kicks him out, yeah, and yeah. Just goes flying. Well, like what really. Yeah. Like this is when I started to turn against uh, Jonathan Price's character because he's he was just super annoying and creepy when dealing with this woman. Um, but the worst part is is that it ends up working out for him, and I'm not sure if this is supposed to be reality. I, I, it probably is. It's before the torture scene, so I, I assume everything before that is reality in the movie. But like it all works out for him. She ends up like falling for him, even though he's literally just following her around. So, yeah, it, it's not clear. A, the, the, I mean, this movie takes place in such a heightened mode throughout that I think you have to take some of that with a grain of salt. And I don't think it is crystal clear, like, what is reality and what isn't here. Even before the torture scene, I think that there is some yeah. indication that he is taking a break from the real world there, a lot a, of the time. When they have their, like, romance scene before he gets taken by the government, right. there's a bit of that kind of, like, peachy filter Right. On well, the camera it, that made it seem a little dreamlike. Right, and she shows up like with the long hair when she actually has a shorter haircut when he meets her the first time. She says it's a wig, but you know, maybe, maybe well, not. He has the physical wig at the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, he does. But like it explains I, it. I think there is there Gilliam as you move further into this movie, he's toying with reality and the the John Price's character's perception of reality. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean it, it's also a, a fair critique that, you know, most women probably wouldn't behave that way. <laughs> and the yeah. way that the uh, the Jill character, her name is Jill, right? I've been yeah. calling her that. Okay. It's Jill. Um, behaves at the beginning Jill of their interaction. Yeah, the beginning of the interaction makes more sense than how yeah. she behaves at like, the end of it. Her character seemed pretty cool to me because she was asserting for her neighbor's like wrongful accusation right. and arrest and was trying to solve all that. And then she just evolves into this object of uh, the main character's affection by the end of the movie. Right, and to, to me it feels like this movie is so consciously and, uh, I don't know, intentionally constructed that there's a, re that Gilliam's doing something on purpose, right? Like he's not a dumb guy. He knows how the, what the arc of this character looks like if you just play it straight. 
so I think there is something more about how Lowry is perceiving the world and perceiving this person that is being influenced by something other than reality and something other than how she's actually behaving. Um, and that matters, right? And I think that I would probably need to see the movie a few more times. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if I noticed any specific indication that he wasn't really in reality until after the torture scene. Uh, well, there's numerous shots of him in mirrors that I think are important. Uh, suggesting an actual split in his personality, especially around the the, um, the Jill character, right? So I, I think that there is something to be said that she is this idealized version of himself, right? Like something that he wants to be more like, right? Like he wants yeah. to be assertive, he wants to be able to break out of the society, he wants to be able to have more control of his life, yeah. and this is something that she can do, right? And I think that there is some indication of that in in the, the Lowry character, and then you see her becoming less than, and you see her becoming confined to a gender role as he becomes more confined by okay. the, the government, right? Like, as they take him in, as they, as they close in on his scheming, she becomes smaller as well, right? She seems like a direct inspiration for um, Imperator Furiosa. Furiosa. I was just oh, yeah. about to mention that, That's actually, because yeah. she looks a lot like Charlize Theron, actually. Especially and with that haircut. Yeah, and she's got this, like, giant badass truck. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And she uses to haul things around. Yeah, and she uses to, like, escape from the society. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right about that, and I'm sure yeah. that, that Miller watched this movie uh, more than a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think that I have not settled uh, as to my thoughts on that character, because uh, your critiques are, are heard and, I think, well-founded. It's challenging because the film is so much from... Price's point of view, yeah. and she, we we know about her, but we don't see her much. We just see her in passing, mm -hmm. and so it's challenging to like reconcile that, right? Because we know so much about her as the audience, but yet she knows so little about what's happening in the film, right? Right, right. It, it, yeah. and to me, that suggests that, or to me, the the purpose of that is to suggest that she exists to some degree outside of this system, right? Like that she has found a way to do the thing that John Price wants to do from the get-go, which is to break out, right? Which is to not yeah. not be confined by this, which is why you see him in his dream sequences with wings, right? Mm -hmm. Flying out over this open landscape, right? You see him as this, flying as this metaphor for freedom, which is crystal clear, right? And I think that that is what you're seeing in the, the Jill character. Yeah, that's such like a boomer perspective too, because she like, her, her vehicle literally gives her freedom yes. within that. And that's like boomers are like so car oriented, where the car is freedom and like right, right. The, right. the manifest absence yeah. is yeah. like how to break from society. It's Jack yeah. Kerouac and shit. Yeah, <laughs> all over again. yeah. Um, <laughs> which it, is funny, right? Cool, because yeah. it's about freedom of movement, right? Like so yeah. much of it, you, like you look at the demise of the um, the De Niro character, right? He he is extinguished when he is unable to move, right? Like all of the trash, all of the stuff that's coming around latches onto him, holds him down, and he literally yeah. dissipates inside of it. And his way to break from society is so, like, he doesn't move within society in a normal way. He right. uses mm -hmm. like, looks like He looks like Batman. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, yeah, he, is, he, yeah. he looks a lot like Batman. And I think that that is almost intentional. Like how much he's, he's moving around at night, he has all this equipment, all these gadgets and stuff. Like he's mm -hmm. able to trick people and do 
detective work inside a inside of the places other people can't get. Like he, he feels like a dystopian yeah. Batman. I I did love how goofy his character was, despite being like this kind of oh, vigilante yeah. badass. Like he shows up and he's got his toolbox and like. Price's character turns around and turns back, and he's got these goofy magnifying glasses <laughs> yes. on. That moment yeah. got me. Right. Well, another example of the the, the body being distorted, right? Yeah. Like, that you see with these big dumb glasses, and like his his grand plan to like get the guys out of his apartment is a poop joke. Yeah. Right? <laughs> he just like switches the pipes and is like, oh, now their suits are filled up with sewage. And it's like, okay, <laughs> that's that's the kind of joke we're making. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so, it, well, and he feels so much different than the rest of the world, right? Where the, the rest of the world is absurd, right? But it's not goofy, right? Yeah. Whereas he is this non, uh, non-serious character, but it's this way that feels that there's a joy to it that is very lacking in everything else in this movie. He might be the only one who speaks with an American accent in the movie, yeah. too. Maybe Jill. I don't remember what accent Jill had. Right. So well, maybe it was just Jill and De Niro. It, well, and De Niro is so strongly identified as an American actor. Yeah. Right? He, especially at that time. It's just the, the great American actor is Robert yeah. De Niro. And I think that that's part of it as well, right? That he is so strongly, identi- so strongly associated with here and not Great Britain. Yeah. And I think that that matters. Yeah. Yeah. The film, I think, does a good job of offering a solution to itself. Going insane. Is, Going, going insane, but the <laughs> no, but in his dream sequence though, they they blow up this society. Yeah, and I think it's a very strong. Oh yeah, uh, statement where it's like there is there's no way to crack this society from the inside. The only solution is to tear it down from ex- externally. Yeah, right. Because he he's yeah. not even the one that that does it. He's he's rescued from it. Mm-hmm. But it's the people outside of it that actually execute the plan. Yeah. And in some some of the reading I did on this Gilliam said that he had to leave the US otherwise cuz he was um, you know in the mid 60s when the weather underground is is active and they're starting to blow up post offices mm-hmm. and other and FBI buildings and other things. Yeah. Gilliam says that like if I stayed in the U.S. any longer, I would have to join the Weather Underground and be a part of this group. That's interesting. And then here, here we see it in depicted on film. That, I did not know that blowing up the society. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Inter- I mean, yeah. you'd think there would be some sort of English equivalent, right? There. Had- well, it's, it's an obvious reference to uh, Guy Fox as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that was. 200 years ago, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but but the reference is still there. Yeah, right? no, that, no, like, I get that. Yeah, you're the, absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah. So, the, but I mean, you know, a modern like a, a weather underground equivalent. It's surprising that I don't know enough about British history, especially recent British history, to speak to this intelligently. Well, but, like we said earlier, you know, the conflict between the right. Irish and, and the UK, right? Yeah, or the Crown. That's that's yeah. true. But and again, a lot of like government. Buildings are being targeted, like but like uh, mailboxes and stuff. Like there still aren't mailboxes in the UK because really you or not in the UK but in Ireland or Northern Ireland. I did not know that they're such a good bombing target. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. Huh. So yeah, I guess that he would have been a weather underground terrorist. I guess that's. Yeah. I mean, you see the the use of terrorism and the, the word terrorist in this movie, and how he plays with that. I. I guess his strong identity with people that would have been identified as terrorists and actually were identified as terrorists. Yeah, I feel like we've cooled that. cooled a bit on the like constant discussion of terrorism, but 
right after 2001 in the following decade everywhere terrorists and terrorism was a constant mm -hmm. concern and the way the language is used in a very similar fashion uh, in real life and in this movie so yeah just a generic yeah. bad right like that's it it's yeah that's what it was yeah, yeah that's all it means I think the movie yeah. makes an implication that like the, the the bombings could be set up by the government right because yes. like you never see they, someone like actually playing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They have the line about "Have you ever seen a terrorist?" They never really connect De Niro's character, who's yeah. implied to be the terrorist leader or some or an activist or something like that, to any bombing. And then eventually, the woman gets labeled as a terrorist, and then finally, Sam Price's character is like yeah. a terrorist sympathizer. Or yeah, like right. the yeah. only time you see them actually like bombing anything directly is in uh, Sam's like torture dream. Yep. Uh, and that's just because he's made the assumption that Tuttle was. The terrorist leader, right? Because he fixes because he air fix, conditioners. He for fixes free. air conditioners, yeah. Yeah. right? Well, and the, at the beginning of the film, and really, I think again later on, the the diagnosis for the terrorist problem is that they lack good old fashioned virtue, right? Like that's the, that's why they're doing what they're doing. It's totally divorcing any kind of political, material, social purpose or cause for what's going on. Yeah, right. It, it has nothing to do with the actions of the government. Or it's like restless young people. Right. That's, that's right. Exactly. There's the that's, guy in the news, I guess. Right. He's, they're doing it to do it. Yeah. That's it. They're just because they they're hate just it. psychopaths. Yeah. Exactly. Which is how the the September 11th was labeled, where mm -hmm. it was like if you ascribed any sort of like reasoning to them, they were you're a sympathizer. You were a sympathizer, and this yes. there was a college professor who did it in a very uncouth way, but yeah. pointed. To this, and he was fired, and he was like pilloried in the press. It was like a huge deal, and yeah, it's like 2003 or so. Right, but where they yeah. told us exactly why they did it, right? Like you can look on their website. The the, re the reason that they, and I think a lot of people get this wrong. The reason was not to drive us into the security state, right? Like it wasn't yeah. about you know making it a pain in the ass to get in an airport, right? Bin Laden's declared reason for doing 9/11 or for planning and executing 9/11 was to give Americans a very small taste of what Iraqis and Afghanis and all of these Middle Eastern countries that America has invaded for the past many decades, give them a small taste of what has been visited upon those people, right? A small taste of what it is like to see a place where you work and you live be destroyed utterly for no reason. Right? That was the reason. Right? It didn't have anything to do with the effects afterwards. Yeah, it's it's happening a lot right now with uh, North Korea too, where it's yeah. like, oh, the North Koreans just want a nuke so they can bomb the U.S. Right. And the when the North Koreans like do stuff, they always release long statements about like why they're doing it and like their intentions and like the fact that they would back down if mm -hmm. if they were to like do reasonably be negotiated with. Yeah. And but then. You know, we have this like very orientalist point of view where it's like, oh, they're just like these like evil it's about pride. It's about honor. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like this evil madman in the yeah. Korean Peninsula or, or something. Like, and and they there is a wackiness to the North Korean culture. However, they they seem to have like very reasoned statements as to like why they're doing the things that they're doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like the yeah. the re like the other purpose behind Bin Laden executing 9/11 is that he wanted to gain sympathy. Right, he wanted to say uh, he wanted people to the the chain of logic he wanted people to follow is, oh, this is what it's like. 
that's terrible. I didn't like this, so I shouldn't do it to other people. And I shouldn't condone my, my country doing it to other people. It didn't work, right? No. So these people that say like, oh, Bin Laden won because I have to take my shoes off at the airport <laughs> are wrong. He, didn't, he did not win because his country was bombed a yeah. lot. Right, like it led to much, much more of what he was trying to prevent. Yeah, and there's a lot of twisting in language from the news media because of like a lack of context. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because it, we, which and it's illustrated well in this film because they're like, oh, if you're just bad, you are a terrorist. Whereas like the woman in this film is like just kind of trying to get paperwork corrected. Yes, and like eventually she's like seen as a terrorist because of that. And that's, yeah, that's all it takes. Yeah. That's all it takes. Yeah. Same thing with the mineral character. He's trying to yeah. you know, run a small yeah. business. <laughs> that's all it takes. Yeah. We've, we've gone kind of long. There's a lot to chew on in this movie. Yes. Uh, one yeah. last thing that, like, for me that I really like about this film is that the entire impetus for the film is some guy killed a fly and it fell into yes. a typewriter yeah. yeah. and caused this... <laughs> the typo. The, the typo. Yeah. From, um, from Tuttle to Buttle. And that's... A, a butt joke. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's also a butt joke. Which is a great kind of like sick comedy around this film, right? Yeah. Where like all the events in the film are connected back to this like very stupid thing that happened. Yeah, that nobody yeah. noticed. And, and it, yeah. not, only, not only is it a stupid thing, it's a stupid thing that nobody knows about. Right? Like nobody knows why there was will. this mistake. They never figured out that it was just a normal mistake that can happen in any kind of... Yeah. Large system. Well, and that, and that they don't care for the context, right? Right. What they care about is the information that they have at the moment tells them one thing, and that's yeah. like what they're going for. That is it? Which, yeah. Yeah. So, so any closing thoughts on on Brazil? I wanted to comment on the very like kind of happy sounding Brazil theme yeah. that they yeah. use in the then the music. Um, I like went and listened to the song after, and it just filled me with. Like such a feeling of despair in this, yeah. Now that you having seen this movie this. now, yeah. which yeah. like is awful because it's such a happy and bright and like dancey song. Yeah, like Bing Crosby covered that song. It's it's been all over. Yeah. Um, and another thing I, I noted was uh, the song sounded familiar to me, and I realized that it's very briefly played during the Canto Bite theme from the Last <laughs> Jedi. <laughs> really? If you go back and listen to it, it very briefly <laughs> plays the Brazil theme. That's funny. During it. And it might fit into whatever government they had going on in Canto Bight. That's a, that's a funny connection. Um, but since we're talking about how media is used in this film, um, all the films that they watch, because they, they bring up several movies in the context of Brazil itself, they're all old, right? Like yeah. they're watching Casablanca, and like th this song is playing that was written like 1939 or something. Yeah, they haven't advanced. Right, they, they've advanced. Yeah. The, the technology has advanced, but culture has stopped dead, right? Like they're dressing like it's 1945. They're watching films that were made in the, the 30s. They're listening to music that was made in that same era, and and that's it. There's no kind of creativity. Yeah, I mean the I mean the obvious like the productivity in this society is from all these like bullshit office jobs, mm -hmm. right? So if we just kind of like deinvest from the arts, like this is this, then you stop yeah. getting just art. Dig in and fill in holes. Yeah, yep. and, and here we are today in 2018, and like all of our media is from the 70s or earlier, yep. right? Like all the things that are being made now are just different versions of just that. Just different versions of what we've already seen. Yep, right? exactly. Yeah. So. Um, on, on that depressing note, yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll be back in a minute to talk about some of the remakes from the 70s and 80s that we've seen recently. Uh, stay tuned.
All right, and we're back with things we've seen. Uh, this is a segment where we talk about something that we watched recently. Yes, uh, Crossman, you said you saw half a thing, yeah. and you were going to explain what that means. So after last week, I went home and started watching uh, Speed Racer. Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so I made it about halfway through the film before I fell asleep. It's, so, not, and, it's and, not short. And I intend to finish it. Okay. Uh, my current halfway <laughs> take on the film is that I was surprised that you're so high on the film. It's great. I actually found it to be like, meh, like kind of... Well, finish it first. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel like I got to a lot of the points that you were speaking about last week. Um, like kind of the notion of, which we've spoken about a lot in the Wayne's World episode, like the notion of like selling out comes mm -hmm. hard, like it's very the, the fundamental conflict in the movie. Yes, yeah. is like selling out to. Well, a he's company. refusing to, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and whether or not that's the right move, and yeah. the movie clearly decides it's not. The visual, the visuals in the film are even more absurd than I was expecting. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> it's the, huge. They do, in particular, the thing that I like really focused on was. The way that edits are done in the film are like kind of zanily animated. Um, yes. Like one of the last scenes that I saw, there was a like hard left to right swipe and kind of like a Star Wars style. Um, but the break between the first scene and the second scene was penguins walking across <laughs> the <laughs> film. Yes. Yeah. It's all sorts of crazy bullshit. Yeah. Well, and they have and all these cuts where like the announcer is announcing something about the race and you get like a profile shot like of the announcer over the race and the race is still happening in the background and they're like yelling excited things and then it like cuts away to something else and yeah. crazy shit like that. So it's like an anime. Yes, it is just like that. I, I like what they're doing but it's it's very distracting. Um, so it's hard to take the film seriously at all because I'm so focused on the way that it looks. It's done well in that it's like incredibly flat. Like the graphics are very clearly like they're animated 3D, but they're purposely very 2D yep. looking, and that gives this like extreme flatness to like mm -hmm. this universe. Which is funny because when you're driving, it's all like that flat. Yeah, it's yeah. like it has a lot of depth. That's like like the only moment where there's like a lot of depth that you're given. Yeah, uh, and, and like the yeah. character implications of that I think are pretty clear that he feels more alive yeah. when he's driving as opposed to the flatness of the world when yeah. he is not driving and that, that's important to him. And the parallels between that and creation and, and art and the artist yeah. are obvious. I, I know that this is really true to the original text, but the chimp character I also find <laughs> very distracting. I love that uh, they never explain him. It's just this family that's living with a monkey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it. Like as a sibling, essentially. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of like animal actors. Uh, yeah, just because like the implications are morally like very troubling, and it's I true. find this character in particular like. <laughs> Annoying to the point of that I dislike it. To, like, to be, it makes me dislike the film. To be oh. like, there's just the right yeah. amount of monkey nonsense for it's it to no, way too much for you. Yeah, way too much. And okay. the kid that there's a kid that acts it's opposite like the to the partner. monkey. Yeah. Also very annoying. Uh, very <laughs> oh, reminiscent man. of the kid that was in A League of Their Own. Okay. No, yeah. he's not that bad. He's not that no. bad, but it's like there there are elements of like. That character. Well, and that yeah. he's like a dopey, annoying kid, yeah. But like, so you combine an annoying kid with an annoying animal. Yeah. No, I think yeah. I think the animal's hilarious. So that that's where <laughs> I'm at on the film about halfway through. Okay, uh, maybe well, I'll, I'll talk about the 
could finish next week. Yeah, like the. It also telegraphs, I think, a lot of. There's things. nothing subtle about this movie. No, yeah. absolutely nothing. Yeah, <laughs> like it is very much hard on its sleeve. Yeah, the plot moves are telegraphed. The like, like secrets within the film are like explained way ahead of time. Yeah, and yeah. Like, that, yeah. And, and again, I think that that's yeah. a good choice. Like they're, yeah. they're not about. It's the opposite of Abrams, right? Like yeah. they're not about the reveal. Like the the thing about like. Like you learn something about the character, and like that there's some sort of something that's being concealed, or he has to make some choice, or whatever. And it, the whatever's being concealed, or the choice is made in the next scene, like immediately. Right? Like that—that's yeah. the kind of moves that this plot moves that this movie makes. Yeah. And I like that about it a lot. Yeah. So anyway. that's where I'm at with it. Okay. Well, I'll yeah. be—if cu- you—I'll be curious what you think of the ending, okay. or the conclusion of the movie. So I guess we can return to that yeah. next time. <laughs> uh, have you seen anything good, Charles? I saw Deadpool 2, um, and I was fine with it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. uh, I feel like, so I like the first Deadpool, but I feel like people overhype it. Um, Agreed. Because people oh. really like Deadpool, uh, and I just think, like, you know, it's funny, it's entertaining, but I wouldn't really be raving about it to people uh, after it. Uh, and that's basically the same thing for 2. So, like, there's some good jokes in there. Uh, I guess I won't spoil them because people might still want to go out and see it. it, But, like, um, there's some good jokes in the movie, um, some cool characters and scenes. Um, I liked... (laughs) It's a movie with stuff in it. Well, yeah, but, like, you know, some movies don't do that, right? (laughs) Yeah. Plenty of movies don't actually do that. Um, So it succeeds in being that kind of meta comedy that you want out of this type of movie. Um, But... I don't feel like it extends beyond that. It's not that memorable, all things considered. Uh, and I wasn't too drawn in by the sort of emotional core uh, of like the main plot line of the movie. That I just like didn't really care about at all. Even though it's like the entire like character development of Deadpool. Um, this sounds a lot like my experience with Deadpool One. Yeah. Yeah. Which I did not like. I thought that was a bad movie. No. I, I stand alone there almost, but. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, I liked Cable, um, the villain played by Josh Brolin, just because Josh Brolin's awesome. It was an interesting character. Uh, I liked what they did with him. (laughs) They pitched Cable as a villain? Yeah. Really? Okay. I thought they did. Did I I just watch the trailers? No, I mean, in the movie, he's a villain? Well, I mean, he... He's not a villain the whole way through. It's okay, spoiler. I know what happened. I, like, I know who Cable is, and I've read the comics. So okay, like, I don't I know. It. I didn't know that, because <laughs> yeah. all the trailers have him as the villain. Okay, I guess so, because I'm familiar Like, the enough. trailers didn't show the core plot line of the movie at all, so I thought it was going to be Cable shows up, and they're going to have to fight him for some reason. I guess I can see that. And yeah. that turned out not to be the, the actual plot line of the movie. But anyway, Cable's character was really awesome, and I really liked Domino. Uh, apparently you know who she is because you've read the comics but she's uh, uh, she joins their team and her superpower is that she's really lucky yeah and they get a few scenes with her using her luck powers and they were super fun to watch um, to watch them manifest so it was sort of like watching a Quicksilver scene from X-Men for the first time um, and seeing how they explore that kind of power Um, so it was just really fun to see it happening uh, there was some really bad CGI in this movie um, during a lot of the action scenes, but that I was, was okay with that. true the first one. Yeah, well. it's really low budget, I guess. Uh, the CGI was notably bad in this one, even worse than the first one, I think, in some That's bits. Um, but despite that, I thought the domino scenes were extremely fun, um, and she was a really fun character. Um, and those scenes I found very memorable, unlike the rest of the movie. I saw an interview with Josh Brolin, and they were like, 
is there anything in your career that you would take back? And he like <laughs> thinks about it for a second and he's like, probably Jonah Hex. <laughs> Which is like his other comic book film. <laughs> well, he's done three now because he was Thanos as well. Yeah. So he's a... Uh, yeah. That's two... I think is he probably the only guy to do two characters in the current Marvel Universe. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, no, but I can't think of it. <laughs> Eventually, like literally every actor in Hollywood is going to be somebody in the MCU. Okay. Yeah, I feel like that's sure. where we're trending. Ryan Reynolds. He. Oh yeah. Well, no, they, no, because uh, Green Lantern is DC. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. I guess Chris Evans was the Human Torch. He was. So there's that. Yeah, but that's not. Reynolds canon. was also Deadpool in Wolverine and Deadpool yeah, in this true. reality, which are clearly right. very. And they definitely address that in the movie in a pretty funny way, uh, in like the after credit sequence. Uh, okay. Of course they do. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I this is on my list of films to I'll get there. catch. Yeah, I'll get there. Um, I've been pretty busy lately, so I haven't been getting to the theaters. But I, like, I do want to see this film. Yeah, yeah. there's uh, a reason I've waited. Like, I'm yeah. not like this uh, every weekend. It's been there's something else I want to see more. And even this weekend. That's probably weekend. always going to be the case then. Yeah, you're right. Which just means I'm probably going to watch this on Netflix or something. Yeah. Uh, not a big loss if you do, I think. Yeah. Uh, speaking of movies I should have watched on Netflix, I saw Solo this weekend. Or not this weekend, yesterday. <laughs> and it was fine. <laughs> like, I feel like that's all I can say about that's this That's generally movie. the reaction that I've heard from people. Right? right? Like, there's nothing yeah. obviously wrong with it, but it's clearly yeah. not a very functional movie. You, you like this film a lot, right, Charles? Uh, no, I, I thought that it was <laughs> <No>. good. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't say I liked it a lot. I thought it was good and that I went in with really low expectations and thus it far exceeded my expectations. Um, but I wouldn't say I, like, I loved the movie or anything. See, like, I was affirmatively trying to stay optimistic for this movie because I do like Star Wars. Right? Like, I, I'm not, I don't yeah. think I'm quite on your level of Star Wars fan, but I, I identify as someone that really likes Star Wars. And, so I, and I like Elden, Aaron, Reich. Reich, whatever. I liked him in Hail Caesar. I think he's a good actor. I think he was actually totally fine here. Yeah. Um, he just didn't have that much to work with with the script. Anything. The character, like the character, has no arc. He starts as like this guy who is kind of tough and on his own, but secretly likes people, and he ends the movie in the exact same spot. He's practically just like a camera. Yeah. He's he's just an observer for other shit that's going on, and that shit isn't that interesting. Um, I thought some of it was pretty interesting. It's mostly the action scenes. Oh, it's some of them, right? That, I don't know. This feel, the, the more I think about this movie, the more it falls apart, mm-hmm. and the more it just feels like a mishmash of things that didn't need to, that don't hang together in a coherent way. Maybe this happens in the film. You don't need to like spoil it for me. But my sense of like what a cool solo movie would be would be like the sort of like classic heist sort of set up. And yeah. that's what I, the impression I got from the trailers yeah, here it, is that... Yeah, they're pitching it that way, but the heist yeah. is they show up at a place with stuff that they want, kill everybody and take the stuff and leave. <laughs> right? Okay. And it's like, because the part of the fun of the heist is like the planning of it and like you see the execution Yeah, I want to see like in Ocean's Eleven, but like in the Star Wars universe. It's yeah. not quite that yeah. elaborate. They had a pretty cool plan for the train heist, but then it goes wrong. Yeah, and even that Because they never go right. And like the plan going wrong is half the fun of the heist, right? But like here, it just is like, oh, there's a train and we're going to hop on it and blow up the track and take the stuff. And it's like, all right. And then that kind of happens. <laughs> okay. Fine. <laughs> Fine. Uh, so I think what this movie needed to do to be functional is have Solo start off as an ideal, an idealistic character, 
right? As someone that sees the good in people and wants to help out and wants to contribute and have this be the story of his downfall to, where, to get him to where he is at the beginning of episode four. Yeah. Right? As, a, as a selfish character who has learned to only look out for himself and not trust anybody. Yep. And to yep. see that process play out. I think that's and, what they were trying to do too. It's just they didn't do it. No, they didn't do and it And they've all. gotten rid of like all the like book lore, right? So like yeah, his, his origins from the books are not. That's gone. What we're seeing here, okay. I, whatever that was, I don't even know. Well, he was like a—he was sold into like slavery. Or oh whatever yeah, in the book, they, so. they touch on that a little bit. Like he starts off as like this person indebted to a crime lord on his home planet. No, that's very different. He, yeah, he like yeah. he worked in like mines. As yeah, like that's a kid that's and, not a thing here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. too dark for Disney. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. Um, well, they have slaves in this movie. Yes, they do. It's a major theme in this movie. Yeah, yeah, which is. A, a so dubious choice. They, they went there, I guess. Yeah, but they again, they don't do anything with it. And I think that you see fragments of like Lord Miller in here, and like the comedy that they wanted to make, and instead this. Like, this is the Lego movie people, right? Yes, who are who are good, too good for Star Wars apparently, because <laughs> um, they got fired. Because they were too funny. Right, and too weird, and yeah. they were making a movie that was not in tone with what Disney wants, and it. If the if the movie if Disney's goal was to make a movie that feels like a middle of the road Marvel movie, they succeeded because I walked out of this and I felt like basically the same as I did after I saw Doctor Strange or something. I mean, like one of those totally forgettable Marvel movies that you're never going to watch again. I mean, Star Wars is that right yeah. now. It is Marvel. Well, except yeah. that not always because Last Jedi is a genuinely thought provoking, challenging film, and. So they can do it, and they can decide to do it when they want to, and they just decided not to here. It's like, yeah, but these right. are these are like the filler episodes, right? Yeah. This is like the yeah. first, what the the other one, which also a heist movie. Rogue, this is Rogue better one. than Rogue One. Okay, I thought Rogue One was hot garbage, so that's just me. But this is better than that. again. If they stuck with the original lore, it would have been cool. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> again, whatever. At that least was. this one had characters that I really cared about. Right, the the people were better in this one. Um, they still don't make any sense, and most of them don't have an arc. Um, yeah. Amelia Clark was surprisingly good. I generally think of her as kind of a bad actor, and she was fine here. How was um, Woody Harrelson? Woody Harrelson, yeah. It was Woody Harrelson. Like, he was doing Woody, he Woody Harrelson stuff. Yeah, okay. he did himself. Woody Harrelson plays Woody Harrelson. Yeah, his character <laughs> yeah. didn't make sense. But, his character uh, did not make sense. Um, that's too bad. Yeah. That's not his fault. He did what he could. Uh, so my advice for Solo is to wait for Netflix, because it's definitely going to be on Netflix. I think the action scenes are good enough that you'd want to see it in theaters if you're into that kind of thing. Well, they would be, except that they shot this movie like a bunch of idiots. Like it feels like you're watching the whole movie through like a sheet of dirty water. Like everything is just muted and not even that clearly in focus. Like it, this movie looks awful. I liked how gritty the movie oh, looked. Actually, I thought it, was, I thought I, I thought it, thought it grounded the movie. I genuinely thought the projector was out of focus. Like I was ready to complain to the regal that I was at, <laughs> yeah. uh, but then other people pointed out the same problem to me. So I thought it's it's the movie. It's not the the theater. Um, so yeah, not not too high on solo. Oof. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> what are we watching next, Grassman? It's your pick. Got a good one. Yeah. So uh, I've done a number of classics on this. We have. Podcast. Uh, I think Sound of Music is, Let's do it. is uh, one of those classics. And <laughs> yes. I it's think, necessary, right? Yeah. It's necessary. I just I know think, that one song and that's it. I think it, it escaped our original list of all this. Right. That right. we like set up. Yeah. But it's an important one. Wait, wait. You know, you know only one song? What's the one song from Sound of Music? Doe Deer. Wait, are there others? What? 
Well, there's, there's other the songs Sound of Music, <laughs> the song, and there's also the Do Deer. Okay, okay, I, I have heard that one. I forgot that, okay. I <laughs> forgot, forgot that I Sound for, of Music was from I forgot that music. it existed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I forgot about it, but when you mention it, I right. remember it. We can use this it. next week. <laughs> okay, I just feel like we need to prime the audience. Some Julie Andrews classic, Sound right. of Music. Sound of Music. Yeah. Um, so thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, if you like the show, please share it with literally every single person you've ever met in your entire <laughs> life. <laughs> they, they will like it too. Um, and join us next week for Sound of Music.